Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2, Episode 18, You Son of a Bench. I'm in where we will be looking at chapter 33 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of the token evil teammate. Ah, <laughs> uh, I love this section of the book. Me too. It's a classic heist, like something right out of the A-Team or Ocean's Eleven or the Italian job. Yeah. <sighs> My heart. Anyway, as per usual, short explanation of the pod. Each week we will be examining a section of the wise man's fear through his chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with the Aristotelian in front of most of the week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and then we will share a recommended thing of the week. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Secondly, all of our discussions naturally assume that you have read all of the King Killer Chronicle, because otherwise, why are you listening to us? Or why are you starting here? Hmm. Anyway, needless to say, beyond this point, here be spoilers, a word to our community. Please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds we love exploring. All right, so with that little bit of speed reading done, it's time for me to do some speed reading of my own because I've got the 45-second recap this week. And I need to locate a timer. All right, in three, two, one, go. After another Miss Denna letter, Quoth prepares for a scheme that'll make his Ambrose situation better. At least that's the dream. Quoth and his crew meet up at the fire pit, only for Davy to walk through with Mola's remit. Davy wants Ambrose punished, so she's down with a plan to see his station rubbished with her usual elan. While Fella distracts the cad under pretense of a date, K&W plays some hands bad, as if they're by fate. After Davy burns the mommet and sets Ambrose's chambers alight, Quoth rushes in heroically at the moment, as if the blaze he'll fight. While wrecking the place, Quoth destroys the link, which is a saving grace, as he also nabs some ink. It's the claim slip for Denna's ring, which is at a local jeweler, which will make her heart sing if they can find time to give it to her. 40.42 seconds. I was worried about that one. <laughs> I was actually a little bit worried about that one. Were you worried? No, because it meant that I would have, you know, had some cherries in the house again. Relief. <sighs> sweet, sweet relief. <laughs> so anyway, let's move on and talk about this chapter, number 33, Fire. We start things off with more postal problems. Well, now we know why they're postal problems. They're using 10-year-olds. Not only that, illiterate 10-year-olds, which I, I honestly think that Kvothe is maybe a little too snarky to the kid. I agree with you. I think that Kvothe is the, uh, like when you ask, am I the asshole? The answer to you, Kvothe, is yes. It's you. It's your problem. Yeah, because it's frustrating that this happened, but Quoth takes for granted his level of literacy, especially in a mostly medieval world where that sort of thing is not 
something you can take for granted. And literacy, just in general, isn't really a marker of intelligence. There are plenty of people who would be considered illiterate who are plenty intelligent in their own right. And then there are a lot of people who are technically literate, they can read, but certainly don't use their brains. And I think we can all think of a few examples. Oh yeah, but that's kind of mean, and I would rather not. Exactly. Point being, Quoth is way too mean to this kid who's just doing the best he can. Trying to find your way around a city when you can't read is incredibly difficult. Trying to find a new place specifically. And if all you can rely on are landmarks and you're relying on a phonetic spelling of anchor. Or if you're relying on pictures of what you think the place is. It isn't obvious to someone who doesn't know all of these things already by experience. So maybe a little grace would have been kind. On top of that, we have what seems like maybe Patrick Rothfuss was a little bit annoyed at people who weren't able to pronounce Quoth. Because are you Quoth? Are you Quoth? Whatever the K-O-A-T-H would be pronounced as. And... Quoth is just testy, and it's just like, that's not how you say my name. It's understandable to be a little annoyed. He's got a lot on his mind, and the kid's also an hour too late. And asking for more money than Denna promised. Yeah, kid's got hustle. It's just not in the right way. So after being just a complete asshole to this poor kid, Quoth drags him downstairs, writes out a note to Denna that is even more mean to the kid, <laughs> saying that the kid doesn't get any money until he brings back a note from Denna. Yeah. Also, if you can hear rumbling in the background, that's because there is what looks like a monsoon outside our window. And it's delightful. It is. And hopefully it's not so windy that any parts of trees will come down on us. But thank goodness our neighbors already got rid of the one that could have. Indeed. So anyway, he also instructs Anchor to read through Denna's return note to make sure that the kid doesn't try and pull a fast one. Although I do love that Anchor's like, what if it's personal? <laughs> and Quoth just automatically assuming, oh, it won't be. Kid's obviously never gotten a love letter. But I like the reaction, if it's personal, I'll dance a merry little jig. I know that feeling, too. Yeah, sometimes it's hard when you don't know if the feelings that you have are being reciprocated the way that you have them. And you'd rather remain friends with a person than risk ruining that friendship. Then there are those times when you manage to discover that not only does the other person recognize your feelings, but they also feel them back. Then that feeling of reciprocation is just Nothing short of magic. And then you do a little dance. Or three. Or more. And the person that reciprocates your feelings looks over and squeeze and it just makes it all much better. Yep, they're probably doing a little dance too. <laughs> Next, we have the crew assembling at the fire pit. And I have never, ever, ever wanted the equivalent of a D&D &D map, so much for just a book that I am reading. 
I want to know where this forest is in relation to like, there's Emre and then there's the university and then there's the golden pony. Where in the ever loving heck are any of these things in relation to one another? Yeah. And through all of this, like fella shows up dressed for a date night, which means presumably impractical shoes. Like how is she walking through the woods in these? And also how is her dress not getting picked at and you know muddy or covered in leaves right essentially fella shows up and then all the boys turn into that cartoon wolf with the tongue rolling out and the hubbada 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 (laughs) (laughs) i see exactly what you're saying yeah hello nurse just a little bit and then uh we find out that Fella's role in this scheme is probably the most unpleasant, which is to say a date with Ambrose. Which is to say bait. And meanwhile, we also see Fella admiring Sim's new boots, our second mention of the new boots, which will pay off here when the third time comes around. Stay tuned. <laughs> third time pays for all. Yes. So then Quoth hears some voices coming through the woods, and at first he's worried that, oh crap, it's just a couple lovers, and now we're going to have to either have an awkward explanation or find somewhere else. But then he recognizes Mola's voice, and he's like, okay, so far so good, and then he recognizes the other voice. I don't actually think that he recognizes her voice until she steps into the circle of firelight, and that's actually very, very rude. It's Davy. Right. The person who is offered to take him to bed with her as a transaction, but cool. He doesn't recognize her voice? What is wrong with him? I think there's also something to be said about not recognizing a voice in a different setting than you're used to them. Like, people have different voices that they use in different contexts. Accurate. We both have customer service voices. That's correct. There's also voices that we use when we're trying to be quiet that are different from the voices that we showed to the rest of the world. And then there are sort of hushed intimate voices, which are unique in their own right. So it's understandable that if all he's hearing is sort of a hushed murmuring that he doesn't have a context for and can't make out the words for, it might not be easy for him to immediately leap to the assumption that, oh yes, this is Davy, obviously. I can see that, but the way it's written is just so rude. So Mola, it turns out, has explained the whole situation to Davy because they were friends back when they were in the university together. Back when Davy specifically was in the university before being expelled, which she is actually quite proud of. Turns out, also, all of the girls get stuffed into the same little wing of muse, whether or not they want to be. The university is a pretty sexist place. Yeah, The university is a small world, and it's even smaller if you happen to be a woman. And of course, that means that Davy recognizes Fella. So I'm assuming, at least in my own headcanon, that that means that when Davy was in her last year of being at the university, that was probably Fella's maybe first or second term. And there's all these little terms of endearment of like, oh, little Fella, like kind of diminutive and you were so young and it was probably only a year ago but we don't know the exact time we also learn that 
Davy is in this mostly for spite. Spite towards Ambrose in particular. Yeah, it turns out all of the women at the university have their own Ambrose story. And we learn that Ambrose has been treating women not just badly, but downright abusively. Like, it's not just that he's rude, it's that he physically beats women, especially ones that he has paid to have sex with. Which is just... It really gets to the point that Ambrose really cares more about feeling powerful than he does about his partners. Well, he doesn't view them as partners. He views pretty much everyone as someone who ought to be subservient to him. And that transcends gender. It's a thing of class for him. I think it applies to everybody, but I would also say that it's even worse for women and worse for sex workers. Absolutely. Here we also see Quoth give a genuine apology to Davy. Granted, her response is rather begrudging, but it's a start and he doesn't push it. Which is very smart of him. Yep. She says, we're not friends. And he says, that's okay. I just needed you to know where we stand and what happened and that I am sorry. He does explain that he didn't think that he could trust Davy. And then he says, I was wrong and I regret it. That second part is oftentimes the crucial missing part of a good apology. An explanation is good. It turns into an excuse if you don't admit that that explanation didn't take things into account, that you did something wrong and that you experienced remorse for it. And so good on Quoth. And maybe Davy will come around and eventually their bond will be restored. But Quoth knows that she does not owe him that because he knows that he has transgressed against her and that anything that happens after that is in her court. Well, to move along, there is a whole page worth of all the girls making sure that Fella knows how to be safe and how to manipulate the ever-loving fork out of Ambrose. Yeah, I noticed that. And I was just feeling like, oh my goodness, this guy is such a creep. I felt icky reading this. Yeah, a lot of this is just skin crawling. I mean, so things like ask him about his poetry because he's got a bit of an ego. That sort of garden variety, he's maybe a jerk, but not irredeemable. But then you have things like you have to compliment the wine and say, oh, I'd love another glass, but I'm worried it'd go right to my head. And then he'll buy a whole other bottle and insist on pouring it for you. Pouring it in you. Ugh. There's that. There's also start out the night conservative and slowly give him more because if he thinks he's getting somewhere, he won't just take it. I know. That's just so... Yeah, this guy is the worst. Yeah. There's also a very sweet and touching, obvious detail that's happening here where apparently Fella didn't have any jewelry on. So Davy takes off her own very lovely emerald earrings and puts them on Fella to complete her outfit. It's also pretty clear here that Fella's grown way up. She's a lot taller now. And so you have this image of Davy, sort of fun size, trying to reach up to pin the earrings on. <laughs> Davy is a little nonplussed. Oh, of course they look gorgeous on her. <laughs> 
Ankhfoth even notices and says, where'd you get those? Which is where we come full circle on Denna's friend, the poet, who got taken for a ride by a grifter. He had to pay off his debts. And Denna provided a way to do that. Yep. Bye-bye, Emerald Earrings. What goes around comes around. But it's also very sweet. So my theory, my original theory about it's very possible that whatever his name was, the, the sweet boy that Denna was trying to protect and help, may have just been in debt to Davy and was grifting Denna. I still think that that's possible. I also think that it's possible that she paid off his debts for him in this way knowingly so that he wouldn't like have his thumbs cut off or have his blood sold to an arcanist. Or just boiled then and there from Davy herself because she could do that. Right. But if she earns that reputation, it could be good for her. It could also be absolutely terrible for her. Either way, no good would come of it. Right. So I'm still not completely convinced that this was all on the up and up. Meanwhile, we also see the burgeoning bond between Simon and Fella here. And it's really sweet. It is really sweet because Sim, while being the cartoon wolf at one point, I'd actually rather call him like Yakko. No, is it Yakko or Wacko that is going to be more of the uh, horn dog? <laughs> It's Yakko. Okay. So Yakko and Sim have a lot in common with the hello nurse. But I think that ultimately Sim is just a massive sweetheart. And some of that might be learned behavior and some of that might be performative behavior. Because you put a whole bunch of teenage people, I'm just going to say people, in the same room and then you put someone who they are meant to be attracted to in front of them, they're all just going to be like, hubba, 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 hubba. And there's also a lot of attempts to gain said person's attention, which also leads to a lot of exaggerated behavior, exaggerated compliments, and yeah, I can see it. I also think Sim is just, he does some little sweet things that go beyond just the commenting on her physical appearance. That's true. He's also a lot more awkward and it's endearing. And you contrast that with the descriptions of Ambrose. I mean, they're both higher born. Sim's definitely not high, high born, but he's not low born either. He's mid-range nobility. You just see the difference between the sweetness that he brings and the warnings that all the girls are giving each other over this person that they have all been pursued by. Ugh. We know for one thing also that Sim is incredibly genuine and expresses interest in Fella as a human being in addition to someone he's attracted to. There's the sense that he cares about her well-being in a way that someone who's just wolf-whistling doesn't. And we see that he's handed her a token of his affection. We're not sure what it is, though, yet. But it is really sweet. After that cute little romantic gesture, Foth essentially gives Davy Mola's job. And then doesn't do too much in the way of briefing, and Mola's a little offended by this. 
She said, you lectured me for an hour. You quizzed me. Probably didn't need to do that. Right, but Foth absolutely believes that he definitely does not need to coach or quiz or lecture Davy. Yeah, Davy is one of the few people that Foth considers potentially his equal. And so what the job is, is to light the momet on fire or light surrounding objects near the momet on fire. Thus destroying the link and removing any source of forkery. Also, conveniently, lighting fire to Ambrose's room. Handy that, right? I do like <laughs> that there is this interaction that kind of happens more than once between Sim and Will. We're there the comic relief of this entire chapter, and it's mostly innuendo. But in this case, Quoth gives Davy the lovely compliment of, you're the only person that might be better than I am, which I'm surprised Davy didn't smack him. But to continue on, Davy looks and says, you were my little sympathy hand puppet. I am better than you. You think I might be better than you? We both know that I am. And so Sim is just kind of confused over the hand puppet idea, as though he's never seen one or heard of one. And then Will makes a hand gesture, and we can all imagine the hand gesture. And we can all imagine that said hand gesture might be considered vulgar or funny. Or both. Or both. <laughs> and before they can head out, Sim hands Quoth another jar of ointment. Not the same one that Quoth already has. The one that's mostly like fire retardant gel that he already has all over him. This is just essentially burn cream. But if you mix it with piss, it turns into candy. Sim's expression was deadpan. Delicious candy. Sim always looks out for his friends. I think this was another way of Sim saying, you know nothing about alchemy. This is Sim's way of saying, the stuff I've given you will give you fire resistance. That's not the same as being fireproof. Of course, this whole conversation is confusing to Mola, who is not privy to the you know nothing about alchemy. Say it. You know nothing about alchemy. And Davy is just like, they're both stupid. Why do you care? So now we get to see our plot in action. We start off with Will and Kvothe in position at the Golden Pony playing cards. And Kvothe just cannot resist any opportunity to poo-poo a musician that he does not find amazing, great, wonderful, or nearly as good as him. Yeah. His opinion of the Golden Pony is pretty shallow. He thinks that they are hiring musicians for their looks, not their talent, and that they are overcharging for their drinks and their food, and it's probably not worth it. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We also know that their real estate is more expensive, so they probably have to charge more just to make rent. Yeah, but they also craft a finer experience than the local watering hole. So while the two of them are sitting and playing cards and poo-pooing the entertainment. And the clientele. We hear someone crying, fire, fire, as if on cue. Huh. Turns out it's Basil. Basil? Basil. 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 
Okay, I have to point out something before this. Mm-hmm. Will and Kvothe spend a while pretending to play cards. And Kvothe gets so into character that he forgets certain things like don't touch your eye with the fire retardant gel. Kind of reminds me of any time that you watch someone on Hot Ones and they're crying and they're like, I'm going to touch my eye with oh shirt. <laughs> yeah, nobody needs to have their eyes touched with the bomb. <laughs> right. I still love Alton Brown's description of that sauce, which was, it is very hot. It is also very bad. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Lucky for Quoth, he doesn't actually touch his eye, but he almost did. He's also so very into his little show that he barely recognizes his cue. I said there's a fire. (laughs) Good morrow, cousin. (laughs) We're having a fire sale. (laughs) (laughs) so now kvothe leaps into action as if he is looking for the source of the flame trying to play the hero here i mean he specifically says that we also see that he's managed to craft himself a siege stone based on his findings in the archives and this is essentially a sympathetic pocket battering ram which is super handy and Also, not the sort of thing that most people just have on them for a night of playing cards in an expensive bar. And also probably highly illegal. Yeah, you kind of imagine Master Kilvin having a few choice words for him on this. Don't worry, there's an elaborate plot a-brewing. And he won't have said siege stone once the aftermath is being cleaned up. So he uses the siege stone to break down Ambrose's door... Which, I mean, that has to be a little bit of a joy for both in the first place. It's a bit of a rush, right? It's the classic D&D, kick down the door! Right, but on top of it, he's ruined something of Ambrose's already. He takes a little bit of joy in all of this. When he goes to find where the Mommet's fire is, it turns out it's in Ambrose's sock drawer. I'm glad it's not his underwear drawer. Eh, not really. I kind of think that all of his drawers are getting burned at this point. Right. No, no, no. I mean, I'm just glad that Kvothe's little simulacrum of him isn't to be found near Ambrose's unmentionables. You know, I think Ambrose probably wouldn't want that either. Okay. Moving on. As the flames start building, Kvothe is essentially rifling through all of the drawers and looking for anything potentially useful, and then also finding ways to increase the blaze. Giving it more air, more fuel. Chucking out the burning clothes along with the momet, which Sim is kindly going to further destroy. Thanks to the boots. Yep. And also destroying all of Ambrose's drawers in the process. And all of Ambrose's clothing. <laughs> I love how Quoth says, this is mostly not petty, except that part where I kicked over Ambrose's chamber pot. That was petty. And it didn't smell like delicious candy. (laughs) (laughs) It broke, too. And spilled all of the contents. That's disgusting. Finally, a passerby intervenes to help throw out the last of the burning drawers and help contain the blaze. On top of all of what we've already described as the destruction of Ambrose's rooms... 
Quoth breaks the window. I mean, he's raining, burning crap all over the lawn in front of the golden pony. And I love how he's just like, you're welcome. <laughs> Look out down there. Well, my job here is done. <laughs> Takes all of three minutes to just destroy so much of Ambrose's stuff. You'd think, though, that Quoth might have been able to snitch a shirt or two, considering he keeps ruining his own. Granted, he wouldn't want to be caught in clothing that Ambrose recognizes, just because that would only, perhaps, antagonize further. He has to maintain pretext here. That's true, but I kind of figured that Ambrose is one of those people that has so many clothing items that he might not actually recognize all of his clothing if it's been stuck in a drawer for a very long time. I've rediscovered some things that we haven't unpacked in the two and a half years that we've lived here and gone, oh, I own that. So then eventually Ambrose returns to find Quoth sitting in the burned out hollow of his room. I love Quoth's like, wait, these were your rooms? I never would have risked my life to save all this stuff if I'd known it was yours. Okay, but you're missing some of the funny bits. One of the funny bits is the thing that made me comment, am I missing an eyebrow? <laughs> yeah, that's right. There was a bit of a backdraft situation, and he's at first worried that maybe the gel that he's been wearing didn't block the flames entirely. Right, which whooshed up, and he legitimately is worried about the state of his eyebrows. He didn't want to look like he was forever surprised, which was really funny because that's always his description of Abanthi. <laughs> right, because he keeps burning off his eyebrows. <laughs> Has some memories here. I thought that was a fun little callback. Mm -hmm. So then there's the sentence that is, I just burned myself saving your things. And part of this is Will has given Quoth kind of a dummy bandage because he didn't burn himself. Thank you, Sim. But he has to make it look good. He has to make it look like this wasn't all part of the plan. He has to take the suspicion off of himself. Or at least give himself plausible deniability. So Ambrose tosses them out and naturally tosses in a few ethnic slurs along the way at both Will and Quoth. And Quoth conspicuously bumps into him. We'll get to that. Although one of my favorite bits here is also the schadenfreude of someone I can only assume is Ambrose's neighbor. Yes. You better not have stolen stuff is essentially what Ambrose is yelling at Quoth and Will. So Will goes, good job, Ambrose. You caught him. He stole your fire. And then one of his neighbors goes, yeah, make him put it back. <laughs> <laughs> it's just <laughs> chef's kiss oh i also like that when the owner of the golden pony comes by he yells out what the devil has been going on here devil is an interesting word choice considering that davy's the one who lit the fire <laughs> and then the best little bit ever full circle on being able to humiliate Ambrose, Quoth says, candles are dangerous things. Honestly, boy, I don't know what you were thinking. You'd think a member of the Arcanum would have more sense. Which is <laughs> what was said to Quoth for my least favorite part of the entire series. 
when Quoth is such an idiot that he takes an open flame into a library, what the hell? It's pretty poetic. Funny from a person who does not like poetry. After all of this, the crew regroups at the bonfire with Simon and Fella returning together, which is just really sweet. So cute. So then Fella and Simon provide a little reenactment of the scene where Fella returns to Ambrose at his rooms. Fella says, run off on me, will you? And then Simon as Ambrose says, listen to me, you daft bint. My rooms were on fire. Fella says, don't lie to me. You ran off to be with some whore. I've never been so humiliated in my life. I never want to see you again. And scene. But of course, Simon implies that Ambrose was maybe a little cruder than just to say daft bint. Which makes me wonder if we should change the name of this from you son of a bench, I'm in, to you son of a bent, I'm in. <laughs> nah, I like the way we did it. So do I. And I love how Simon goes, look, there are certain things that we'd never call a lady, even in jest, which is just Sim being sweet. Well, this kind of reminds me of when I worked customer service doing telephone banking. If we got someone calling and they were swearing because they were angry at the situation and it wasn't directed at me, fine, you know. Losing $30 to an overdraft fee is frustrating. I get that. I don't blame anyone for being upset enough to want to swear. But the second that you call me a name, I'll give you one warning and say, please don't call me any names like that. I am trying to help you. And then if they do it again, I'm hanging up on their ash. Well, and this goes beyond that. I think what Sim is getting at here is that there are just certain things that aren't appropriate to repeat, period. He doesn't think that it's respectful, even if they're being told in jest to mock someone else. He doesn't want to put that out into the world, and he doesn't want it coming out of his mouth. And I think that that's very sweet, but my point is, you don't call people those words. Yeah. You can use those words to express frustration, but you do not call people those words. Exactly. And I think Sim also knows that he cares about Fella, and he doesn't ever want to have a situation where he is calling her a name, even if it is just him reenacting what someone else said. I think it's really cute that we have this detail of Sim reluctantly let go of Fella's hand after this little reenactment was over. But then Fella did sit next to him, and it's so cute. And Fella asks that Sim provide the entertainment for the rest of the night because Quoth does not have his loot, so cannot serenade everybody. And so after just a little bit of poking, he provides a recounting of everything in Eldvintic verse. Shall I read it? You shall. Fast came our Fella, fiery eyes flashing, crossing the cobbles, strength in her stride. She came to Ambrose, all ashes around him. Grim was his gazing, fearsome his frown. Still Fella feared not. Brave was her bo- And he can't bring himself to say bosom. <laughs> and... Also, he would probably think that your retelling of this poem was done poorly because you did not give the appropriate breaks in between the words. He probably would have appreciated a better 
Cesura foreshadowing. He also would probably have lots of notes. But yes, Will does ask, what is that pause that you keep doing? And I think in the audiobook, I remember it being called a Caesara, which is probably a evolution of Cicera. It calls back to something we haven't actually read yet in the read-through, which is both sword from the Adem and also... What's, is the word Cicerus, what's the word that I'm thinking of? Cicerus. Cicerus, let me look that up. Ah, so the actual definition of Cicera or Cicera is, it's Latin for cutting. And there's a bunch of different spellings or ways that it can be written. It is a metrical pause or break in a verse where one phrase ends and another phrase begins. Yeah, so Cicerus is different than Cicera. The Cicerus is more like a whispering, mumbling sound, where the Cicera or Cicera is like a line break. Cool. Now that we've had our reading comprehension and etymology lesson for the day, let's move on. So, of course, this gets Quoth started huffing about how he doesn't like poetry. And before he can get too far into that, Willem confesses that he dropped a poem in the hallway outside Ambrose's room, which was an acrostic speaking of Ambrose's powerful affection for Master Hem. And then Sim also admits that he has left a lot of women's undergarments scattered in the wreckage of what was tossed out of Ambrose's rooms. For comic relief, these two have been pretty effective. <laughs> yes. At the end of the chapter, Kvothe now has a claim slip for a jeweler who presumably still is in possession of Denna's ring. The slip of paper hadn't been in Ambrose's chest of drawers. It hadn't been on the hearth or his bedside table. It hadn't been on his jewelry tray or his writing desk. It had, in fact, been in Ambrose's purse. I'd lifted it off of him in a fit of pique half a minute after he called me a filthy thieving rue. <sighs> it had almost been a reflex action as I'd brushed roughly past him on my way out of his rooms in the pony. So back to Tarbian. I mean, he's not really that far away from having been living pickpocket to mouth. Yeah, you get the sense that the practice of sleight of hand and pickpocketing is something that Quoth is always a little bit proud of his ability to do anyway. By strange coincidence, the purse also contained money. Almost six talents. The ledger, everybody! He became penniless in this chapter and has somehow reclaimed some fortune. And then some. Honestly, it's no wonder that he found money there because that's what people keep in purses. Right? And while this is just walking around money for Ambrose, it's quite a bit for Quoth. And it was so much money that he almost felt guilty for taking it. Almost. End chapter. So, that's a lot of fun. There's a lot of great character moments throughout all of this, which means that you've got some pretty good options here for your Fernemos of the Week. Who'd you choose? It was kind of difficult. I mean, we've got so many people... And what I think I'm actually going to do is choose all the girls. Okay. It's a good call. I mean, not only do we have Mola being 
the person who goes and explains to Davy what in the ever-loving crap was going on with Foth and why he was being such a jerk to her. But Mola also is able to calm things down, arrange for at least a truce, and make sure that Davy was included in what is one of the biggest pieces of revenge porn I have ever seen enacted towards a jerk in a fantasy story like this. We have reason to believe that there is personal history between Davy and Ambrose. So she obviously has her own reasons to hate him just all on her own. And so her being able to take some agency and everything in this is important. So we have Mola for being the person to instigate reconciliation. We have Davy for being the bigger person and taking the opportunity to be on Kvothe's side or more accurately accept that Kvothe is on the same side and the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And then also the fact of the matter is that she is such a good arcanist that she makes the whole entire plan work because without the spark, without a controlled fire, none. Never gonna work. And then we've got Fella, who is aware that she is being used as bait, but I'm pretty sure that she went into it with all consent and her own choices being made and everyone else caring about that and caring about her. And watching all of the girls have a conversation about how to keep her as safe as possible while not taking away her agency in this choice. I mean, I kind of want to vomit all over Ambrose, but I'm very proud of the girls for not turning against one another. You know, how a lot of women are written to be antagonistic towards one another. I also really liked how Fella in this chapter has some agency and gets to do some acting of her own when she and Simon return to find Ambrose in the ruins of his apartment. Exactly. Like, she gets to have her own little tell him what you think and gets to ham it up a little bit. And Quoth isn't the only one who gets to humiliate Ambrose in all of this. She gets to, and she does it in her own way, that you get the sense that she figured out on her own. Right. There's that. There's also that she knows what buttons to push to get Sim to regale everyone with poetry because she wants to hear it. Yeah, you can also tell that she recognizes that Sim is someone who is worth her time. Right. She managed to push past the no a little bit, but not in a way that is ooky or manipulative or too forceful. Yeah, she is wanting to spend time with him and looking for ways to do so. And you can kind of just see the two of them as friends and building a friendship together that'll blossom into love. I think that that's one of my favorite ways. Just having a deep connection and then realizing that that deep connection isn't just a friendship. And I hate to say it as just a friendship because that means that friendship isn't as valuable as romantic love. Because I don't believe that. I believe that friendship is just as valuable, just as needed. I have been lonely and missing my friends. But that doesn't mean that I want to hop in bed with all of them. 
Well, and you can also see that like the best romances are built on a basis of friendship. It's what makes a romance turn from just a fling into something that can last. If you're not friends with your partner, the heck? Friendship can make those intimate moments even more special and powerful. Like I think about us and our intimacy was built on friendship first. And it's what allowed our romantic connection to be as strong and deep as it is. And it just keeps everything going. It's what helps make it into a true partnership. And yeah, like when I think of all of my relationships, all of the best ones are built on friendships. So I think that that about covers it. It is now your turn to impress Master Elodin with an interesting fact. All right, so this one is yet another excuse to tell Christopher Columbus to get forked. So for a long time, we've known that Vikings were probably the first Europeans to travel to the Americas, but we didn't really have a conclusive time on when exactly that was until recently. So scientists have conclusively proven that Vikings were the first Europeans to arrive in the Americas 421 years before Columbus showed up to make a mess out of everything. While accounts have commonly held that Vikings reached the Americas before Columbus, there wasn't a firm consensus on the date. However, thanks to a combination of wood chips and cosmic rays, archaeologists have determined a concrete date of Viking presence in Newfoundland as late as 1021, exactly 1,000 years ago. On the northernmost tip of the northernmost peninsula of Newfoundland, Canada, there's a prehistoric Viking settlement known as Lance aux Meadows. Thanks, French people. And you probably mispronounced that. Oh, most certainly. Anyway, archaeologists have been exploring the site since the 60s, but they haven't really been able to nail down exactly when the settlement was active. However, new research published in Nature is adding some much-needed clarity to the issue. So a team led by Michael D. from the University of Groningen in the Netherlands provides new evidence showing that the Vikings were active a thousand years ago, and they've provided the first and only known date for Europeans in the Americas before Columbus, who, as we all remember, crossed the Atlantic in 1492 Common Era. So while that general era is understood, why did it take so long to arrive at a conclusive date? Well, according to D., in order to date archaeological sites, one needs either contemporary written records or a considerable number of artifacts that can be placed within a certain time range. This site here did not yield either of those things. The best scientific dating method is probably radiocarbon dating, but that tends to only be able to provide dates to the nearest few centuries. The method used in the current study only became available in the last few years. So to date the site, Dee and his colleagues analyzed three pieces of wood gathered from the site, all of which came from different trees. These pieces of wood were leftovers from the chopping of wood and associated with Viking activity at the area. So the distinctive chips showed signs of cutting and slicing that were clearly produced by metal tools, which the indigenous people living in the area at the time were not known to possess. The team then used distinctive features of the atmospheric carbon record to constrain the radiocarbon dating of the felled trees. The incredible degree of dating precision was made possible on account of a massive solar storm that occurred in 993 Common Era, which left a distinct radiocarbon signature in tree rings around the world. So trees suck up carbon from the atmosphere and channel it into their annual growth rings. And so a spike in the concentration of radiocarbon growth rings was found to correspond with that storm. 
So they measured the carbon concentration of the tree rings in the wood and were able to find the spike. And then they just counted out to the edge of the bark to tell when that tree would have been chopped down. So at that point, that's when they knew there were Vikings there. And that's how they got that 1021 date. So while we know that we had Vikings in North America by 1021, there's still a number of questions. So the total number of excursions to the continent is not currently known, and we still don't know the duration of their stay. That said, it doesn't appear that the Norse spent too much time in North America. They seem to have mostly been looking just for timber and other resources to take back to Greenland. And at this site in Newfoundland, there were maybe 100 people at the site. We know from the plant remains found at the site that they also ventured further south, but we don't really know where. And from the amount of rubbish left, and because they don't have any burials, most think that that site was really just a short-lived camp. But it gives us a date, so I think that's pretty awesome. I really love hearing about people who are that tenacious, that are that determined to explore a hypothesis. And it's always really interesting how something that seems unrelated can give you something so unique. Like, this is something that feels like it's something out of CSI, right? <laughs> like, we found this wood chip and now we know thanks to these particular pieces of seemingly unrelated evidence exactly when these people were here. I think that's cool. Also, I'm here for the uh, trashing and dunking on Christopher Columbus because that man should not be considered a national hero. Yeah, he's a monster. Like I said up top, he can get forked. I think my favorite meme to spread on Indigenous Peoples Day is from the good place, and it's Janet reminding everyone that Christopher Columbus is in the bad place. On account of all the rape and murder. Exactly. And enslavement. Yeah. People forget that he actually went back to Spain in chains because the other Europeans were so horrified by what he had done. His canonization as some sort of modern hero of the Americas is something that people in the United States made up. Yeah. Anywho, it's time for you to recommend a thing of the week. Absolutely. This is so much better than talking about Christopher Columbus. Anyway. My recommended thing this week is Adam Savage's YouTube channel, Tested. For anyone who loved Mythbusters, which it's so near and dear to my heart, watching Adam Savage build more stuff, test lots of little gadgets and things and show us all how to make a proton pack in a day or one that I watched that I really enjoyed was him making a custom guitar case in a day in order to protect Eric Idle's guitar because it needed to be super duper heavy duty protected, I think like on an airplane or something. And in a day created this like Foth's loot case, just beautifully custom thing from all of the stuff in Adam's shop. Adam just has a lot of random stuff in his shop and all of it is stuff to make something wonderful. Right. Like, so the proton pack that he made was so that he could go to the New York City Comic Con incognito. He loves going around in cosplay at cons and hoping that no one will notice it's him. 
and I absolutely am here for it. I just think that if you are a science geek, a maker geek, if you want to hear more of the behind the scenes about Mythbusters, if you want to hear personal stories, if you want just to watch him ramble or to talk with some of his friends, I mean, you just go through and look at the titles of all of the videos. There's how to mold and cast a lightsaber. I mean, who doesn't want to know about that? They made a self-solving Rubik's Cube robot. I mean, now I need to go see this video. You kind of get the sense that he and Master Kilvin would probably have a really good time together. Exactly. So if you didn't know that Adam Savage had this whole other YouTube show, I mean, ecosystem, I mean, builder space, now you do. I think one of my favorite things about it is the curiosity with which he approaches everything. His ethos on Mythbusters, and one that I've really taken with me, is failure is always an option. Failure represents data. If something doesn't work the way you thought it would, that actually tells you something. That's meaningful. You can learn from that. It's okay if things don't turn out the way you hope they will or think they will. That's the only way that it'll actually get to the best form. That you can actually arrive at anything that's going to be useful. I mean, and granted, sometimes those hypotheses turn out to be great, and it's really gratifying. But that's not the only kind of success. You know, it's, I think, a really good way to also just approach life. Just understanding that some things aren't going to work out the way you hope they do. Sometimes they work out better. But the reason that you all get this as your recommended thing this week is because, am I missing an eyebrow? <laughs> I was going to recommend something completely different. But that fits. It fits so well with the theme this week. Exactly. It's a good recommendation. So uh, let's move on to our seven words here. You have the words from the books this week. So what did you pick? There were a few to choose from. None that really, really spoke to me until I got to You Are Dangerously Well Informed About Poetry. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. I love that Sim is just unabashedly in love with poetry and Quoth is just like, ugh. It makes sense. It's sort of a marriage of opposites that Sim and Quoth have. Sim's really good at alchemy. Quoth's really good at artificing. Quoth's really good at music. Sim's really good at poetry. It's almost like they fit together. Go figure. I think that you can have soulmates that are not romantic partners. And I think that in some ways, Sim and Quoth are soulmates. Sim shows the kind of care and love towards Quoth, befitting of a soulmate. And I love that. Were there any others that you picked out that you'd like to share? Nah. Nah. I mean, there are a few, but they're not really all that worth it. Except I just burned myself saving your things. And I'll leave you with that. So I had seven words from life, and they came from you. I love you, sweetheart. You're my person. And this is correct. I am your person. I love you, too. Aw, we just made everyone vomit. They'll be fine. They have buckets. You're presuming. They can find buckets. Or a sink or a toilet. Or they're outside. Anyway. 
With that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 34 through 36 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of plot devices. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jank for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page. Additionally, we would love it if you would rate and or review and or thumbs up on our YouTube or leave a comment or send us a tweet at WaystonePod or take a look at our Instagram at WaystonePod. We want your feedback. We absolutely love the fact that you're listening to us and we've gotten to know a couple of our audience members and it's been wonderful so far and we're curious about the rest of you. The most gratifying thing about this podcast has been that sort of small little community that's sprung up between us and other book lovers and we want to talk with you. Hear your thoughts. Reach out, rate, review, share, all that wonderful stuff. It really does help us out. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! His opinion of the prancing, or sorry, not the, I keep wanting to call it the prancing pony, not the golden pony.